Brought to you by Make Fun Network. Disclaimer. Please do not email us about the historical inaccuracies we are sure to make. We are not historians. We are idiots. And welcome to Anachronismo. I'm Jackie. I'm Max. I'm Noel. And joining us this week is our special guest, Mark Camposano. Hey. Hello, everyone. Hey, Mark. Good to have you. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited. So Anachronismo is a historical comedy podcast, so you'll hear some funny stories and some funny bits. Thanks for listening. We're happy to have you here in this fun little history dungeon that's just populated with stories and jokes. I am trapped in a dungeon. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I'm Max, and I'm being stretched on the rack. I'm manacled to a wall being poked by goblins. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm having my flesh burned with tiny, hot pieces of bits. <laughs> I'm in one of those boxes full of spikes. <laughs> Whoa. An Iron Maiden. Yes. Ah, yes. <laughs> The only thing getting stretched more than Max is his jokes. <laughs> oh, that's so true. That was mean. I didn't mean that. Oh, I just had to play it up. Fine. I had to play it up. I get it. That's fine, dude. So we wanted to say a special thank you to everyone who came out to our live show. Actually, it was only two days ago. But it will be coming out at the end of November because I'm going to release this one first. So. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, it was a blast. And I kind of want to give like an Easter egg to look for or something, but look forward to me shaming the Beck for writing the fan fiction that I, uh, that I'm going to read in this episode. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> so, uh, what stories are we going to be getting into today? Well, I have two stories. One being a follow up, a very short follow up from my story last week of Coca Cola. I have a follow up with Pepsi Cola during the Cold War. Ooh, the Cola War? No, wrong war, but. Same time. Okay. <laughs> and then uh, leading into that, I'm going to be talking about the Barbary War, one of the wars that the U.S. was in between the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. I'm looking forward to it. Does it have to do with killing barbers? No. <laughs> Misleading. That's the second Barbary War. Cha-cha-cha. <laughs> Everyone had such that. long hair. There is actually a second Barbary, Barbary War. So that was the third Barbary, Barbary War. Yeah, World War Barber. The smell of burning hair was fresh on the oceans that day. Einstein said he didn't know what weapons Barber War 3 would be fought with, but he knew that Barber War 4 would be thought with, fought with overgrown hair. Because <laughs> that's all that would be left. Yeah, that's all we'd be left. <laughs> big old piles of hair. Uh, Mark, what are you bringing us this week? It is the day before Election Day as we're recording this. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the modern ballot and voting spaces as you know it. Cool. So, like, back when it was, like, written on dinosaur hide and you had to stab it with a spear to vote? Yeah, that's how it worked. That's <laughs> an accurate – I don't even know why I'm here now. You've, you've ruined the – Sorry, I didn't mean to blow up your spot. Ruined the ending. <laughs> and uh, in between these two stories, I'm going to be reading our first piece ever of Anachronismo fan fiction. So look forward to that at the interlude. Oh, I'm so excited. It's going to be great. I'm pretty excited. Are, are there multiple speaking parts or are you just going to kind of read through the whole? There are multiple speaking parts. I didn't bring multiple scripts. I guess I could pass my phone around, but it seems clunky. <laughs> just do different voices. I'll just do different voices. Yeah. So, Mark, why don't you get us started? Sure thing. 
just so you'll know, I worked a few years ago at Harvard Business School on a course about the history of American democracy. It has since become a book called Democracy, a Case Study. Principal author is Professor David Moss. And this all comes from a chapter that I worked on with him about this. We also had another co-author named Dean Grodzins. So if this stuff interests you, go read that book. You're so much more professional than everyone else who has been on this podcast. Mark's a professional historian by the legal definition of the word. Sure. He's been paid for history. I've been paid for history. Yeah. Wow. The bar just got raised at anachronism (laughs) far above any of the main hosts. So as I said in the intro, I'm going to talk about the history of voting in the United States. But I'm not going to talk about the history of who could vote because that's pretty much covered in school. How, how voting expanded from a very narrow group of people to, you know, basically everyone over 18. Yeah. What I'm going to talk about today is what you actually do on election day, which is very relevant and very interesting. So one of the most important things about modern voting is that it is a secret. You don't have to tell anyone how you voted and you literally do it behind a curtain. How did you vote, Mark? I voted behind a curtain. Uh-huh. I voted last Monday, by the way. Were you wearing a cape? If you want to imagine I was wearing a cape, Max, I, I was wearing my yearly voting democracy cape. Yeah, uh huh. That's good. Okay. It's a good one with a big, with a big, uh, V on it for vote. Yes. He also wears it for Valentine's Day and Veterans Day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. And on the fifth of every month. Yep. For Vismas. It is, in fact, the fifth. <laughs> I have it on right now. It's mm, November wow. 5th, the day we're recording this. Mm. But if you go back in time, to smaller communities where democracy first arose, they often didn't value the secret ballot at all. They actually oftentimes in a small enough community where voting was particular considered a very important privilege, they would often do it in public. And in fact, in small groups, you would say aloud who you wanted to vote for or how you wanted to vote on a measure. They considered it a point of honor. So this idea of a secret wasn't really something familiar. In fact, the word ballot comes from the Italian word balota, which means ball, because one of the ways they would do this would be putting colored balls in an urn, depending on how you want it to vote. Oh, I was hoping it was going to be something like hitting a baseball through a hoop. No, it's like the Harry Potter houses, yeah. where when they get the points, the like jewels come down. <laughs> oh, or like how they would ostracize people in ancient Greece. With colored balls in jars. And if they got too many black balls, guess what? They were gone from the village forever. Is that true? Yep. Yeah. You got a black ball and a white ball and you went, put one in a jar and walked away. And if there were more black balls than white balls, that person was banished from the village forever. That's where the phrase blackballed comes from. Wow. Yeah. That is not at all what I thought the origin of that word was. (laughs) Wait, so was everyone allotted a number of black balls to use per year on No, no, people? no. There was like, it was like an event. If you were a person who allowed to vote in ancient Greece, you went to the thing and they gave you two balls. Oh, yeah. I was really hoping it would be like, oh, Thessalonians, you didn't do your chores today. Looks like someone's getting a black ball. And then they run to do their chores and then the parents don't put the black ball in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's such a power move. Yeah. 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 And that's where uh, most orphans came from in ancient Greece. <laughs> so moving on. Back to America. Written ballots first really cropped up in the United States in the colonies of New England, perhaps because the literacy rates were highest here and you could get written ballots working. If you can't read, you can't have a written ballot. This was by no means something that was immediately taken on. Virginia didn't even require a written ballot until 1860. So the doorstep of the Civil War. So let's fast forward to the mid 1800s. There was not a standardized ballot. 
when you did your written ballot. It wasn't provided by the government or anything. In fact, parties could just hand you a slip of paper with the names of everyone they wanted you to vote for, and you were just allowed to hand that in. Is that clear to everyone? You, yeah. It was just a list of names who they wanted you to vote for, and you handed that in. That is how it worked. It didn't even have the opponent's name on it. No, 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 no. You just handed in their piece of paper. Mm. Here we copied it out for you to save your wrist all the trouble. (laughs) And you can't read. I promise it's the man we talked about earlier on here. Wink. Did you just say wink? Of course I did. You couldn't read it where I wrote it on the paper. (laughs) So you you end up with this situation in in some places in the mid-1800s where some one would run for office. But these groups that they called peace clubs would emerge. And they were basically scams that they would say to the candidate, pay us and we'll put your name on our ballot. Oh. Yeah, because literally any group that printed these tickets could just have them handed in. And depending on who your voting public was, the people who ran these so-called peace clubs, which were 100% scams, not even trying to be legit political parties. Sure, sure, sure. Scams for mams. Scams for mams. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. What you said. I don't know. The words came out. Yep. Yep. (laughs) So they would demand money from candidates. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have written down here, some of them had very funny names because they were fake political parties. And the one I have here just crams it all into one name. It was the Independent Democratic Liberal Republican Anti-Cooley Labor Reform Party of San Francisco. That's just buzzwords. <laughs> just buzzwords Cooley being a slur against Chinese people. I was going to say, yeah. what is that? A coolie yeah. is not a great word for a Chinese person. Ooh. Man, everything else felt like very like general. Yeah. <laughs> well, in San Francisco just... in the mid-1800s, that was a quite general. Yeah, it felt like a real Barnum statement. Like, literally, it says nothing about their thing, except that they apparently hated the Chinese. Yes. Because everyone else falls under that ballot measure. Yeah, that's the one position yeah. that everyone on this thing <laughs> is in agreement with. Yeah. It's a big tent and they're all racist. So once you had your ridiculous ticket, which was set up by a scam company. You're ridiculous. You're ridiculous, Max. Very good. (laughs) Everyone thinks you're so funny. (laughs) Thank you. You would hand it in basically at a public counter in front of a boisterous crowd. So everyone would watch you do this. And if everyone can watch you do this, there are ways to make it very clear how you're voting. Because if I'm a political party and I want someone to know how someone's voting, I will make my ballot look unique. So they gave them unique colors and borders so they would know when someone was voting for them. The Massachusetts Republicans of 1878 had a bright pink border on their ballot. So everyone with the bright pink ballot was voting for them and they could see that and they could tell. And my favorite one is there was a New York Democrat who once dipped his ballots in a particular perfume so that they would smell a certain way so that they would know that the vote was for him. This is just a love letter to democracy. Yes. And like any love letter, it needs to enchant all of the senses. It needs to be sensual and able to evoke a vote of confidence. See, that was a fun fact for me, and you've ruined it forever. You're welcome. <laughs> Going to imagine. It was a pleasure. So when <laughs> Jackie's making a very, very awful face. She hated that very much. So when you know how someone is going to vote or how they voted, you can do two things to them. Carrots and sticks. You can feed bang. them carrots. You can literally beat them up afterwards. With that's, carrots. That's, that's where I was going with. You can throw carrots at them until they fall unconscious. 
In the world of metaphor, what carrots mean is that you can pay them to vote for you mm. because you know how they voted. Oh. And as Jackie was saying, you, you could also intimidate them into voting for you. By just paying them with carrots. Sit them down and watch as you like just beat some carrots with a stick and just yes. be like, this could be you next. Look, I've drawn your face on one of the carrots. Look how unhappy that carrot is. Take that carrot face. <laughs> This is a metaphor for you. Yes, we're very familiar with the carrot and stick metaphor. I wasn't sure you were based on the five-minute conversation we just had that took it very literally. It's my first time with it. I think I did well. So in addition to all this I-can-see-your-ballot shenanigans, there was outright voter fraud. Well, this first one isn't fraud. They would just gather people, pay them right there, hand them out their ballots, and lead them in blocks to the polls. But also there would just be straight-up fraud. They would give them tissue paper thin ballots because the paper wasn't regulated and you can stuff a lot more in there than one at a time. Uh-huh. They weren't keeping track very well, so it was very easy to get people to vote more than once. Uh-huh. Whole vote early, vote often kind of thing. <laughs> um, and as a result of this, for example, in 1868, under the reign of Tweed's Tammany Hall, the voter turnout in New York City was 143%. That's amazing. They gave yes. it their all. Yeah. People really loved democracy. They really back then. loved democracy. Mm. <laughs> and on top of all this, primaries, etc., yeah. completely unregulated. One political scientist has said it was no more illegal to commit fraud in the party caucus or primary than it would be to do so in the election of officers of a drinking club. Oh, damn. <laughs> so, reformers tried to fix All this ridiculous crap. They tried standardizing the tickets. They tried envelopes. They tried voter registration. But they found ways against absolutely all these things. My favorite example is that the state of Ohio mandated that you have white ballots. No matter who you were, your ballots had to be white. So they just used various different shades of white. (laughs) And still got around the rules. Eggshell. Ecru. Chalk. Satin. Satin's one? Yeah. Ivory. Our bone and, wait, our bone and ivory different? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Chalk. Odenil. Are you just saying French sounding words at this point? Tooth. All right. Milk. Double milk. Goat milk. Cream. Cow milk. <laughs> Almond milk. Oat milk. Honey butter. Coconut flesh. Soy milk. Pallid child. <laughs> Paper. Flag left on the moon. Cloud. Untouched birch. Sclera. Tim Burton. <laughs> Tim Burton protagonist. <laughs> Very pale. Very pale. Okay. So the US was not the only place in the world that had these problems. They also had the problem, for example, in Australia, which was at the time a collection of British colonies. No. In the 1860s. That doesn't sound right. One Australian politician, Francis Dutton, once reported to the UK Parliament, I have been in the balcony of a hotel during one of the city elections when the raging mobs down in the street were so violent that I certainly would not have risked my life to cross the street. Election day was insane. So in 1856, the states of Tasmania, South Australia, and Victoria came up with this idea. Tell me if this sounds familiar. A uniform ballot supplied by the government... That you filled out in secret. It sounds familiar. It sounds very familiar. Sounds like a good idea, Max. You don't think it's a good idea? Oh, I just think it's easily exploitable. What if the government gave you different ballots? They didn't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody checked. (laughs) 
Originally, you crossed out the candidates you didn't support, but soon they moved to a system where you checked off the ones you did support. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. There's a lot yeah. of time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's so many candidates this year. Oh, my pens run out of ink. Could you imagine if you had to run for, like, who to cross out? <laughs> this election day. Cross out Harvey Bigglesfield. Cross He's it. a bad candidate. <laughs> also, cross out Jeremiah Jacobson. He has never, ever looked at a glass of milk that he has not tipped over deliberately. He is a cat. <laughs> he is a cat. Do not vote for a cat. Cross out Jeremiah Jacobson. Paid for by the enemies of Jeremiah Jacobson. Who Another all? cat. <laughs> <laughs> and this thing worked in Australia. Like, they had a normal, regular election by current standards. But, mm-hmm. like, nobody tried, not many people tried to kill each other. And there was no, much less bribery, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The second year that worked out, that must have been just such Boring headlines. We'll get there. We'll get there into how this has kind of made voting boring and how some historians have kind of argued that, like, that's kind of a reason for lower voter turnout. I have thoughts about that because I don't think what they were doing before was really voting. It was more of (laughs) (laughs) more of gambling, defrauding. Yeah, we'll get there. That's the last thing. Beating carrots. I guess technically making smoothies was would be the thing you could call what they were doing then. I'm looking forward to buying bake sale brownies tomorrow when I go to vote. Max mm. is Max is going to go vote tomorrow, and there's not going to be carrots being chopped to pieces, <laughs> and he's going to be so disappointed. <laughs> I was promised a healthy snack. Mark told me. <laughs> I have carrots in the fridge. I can give you one if you want to keep it in your pocket till after. Yes. You vote. <laughs> so I have a nice warm carrot. <laughs> This system soon spread to Britain, Canada, Belgium, Luxembourg, and Italy in various capacities. The first instance in the United States was in 1888 in the city of Louisville, Kentucky. I don't know where I was expecting orderly voting to be first, but it wasn't Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville, Kentucky is very known for its orderly election proceedings. Uh, all right. I'll, a, I'll defer to you. To this day. It has the a rich history, Jackie. Professional. Yeah voting historian i know nothing about louisville kentucky aside for this and like it's where the baseball hall of fame is. It's where isn't the... it in new york i may, maybe i'm wrong maybe fame? i knew only no, one thing Yankee about hall of fame i think no no, no. it's in um cooperstown oh, yeah. louisville is the bat I'm, company i'm wrong the louisville slugger that's why i they thought it bats. that's why i thought it uh fun fact about louisville kentucky it is where the name louis originated before then everyone was known as lewis with that name even the french kings Yes, that that's a corruption. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. I don't even know no, how to believe you. That's what it's named after. It's named after the nickname Louis. You're making that face. I can't Give it, it a cursory goozle if you don't believe me. <laughs> you just mispronounced a thing when telling me how to pronounce something. No, that's what you're that's, supposed to call. Yeah. The, it's the old word is Google. Yeah. But when it was under Yahoo, but yeah. now it's Google. Now it's Google. All right. Now that it's under Bing. <laughs> so somebody... <laughs> Somebody said about those elections in Louisville, the election of last Tuesday was the first municipal election I have ever known, which was not bought outright. As a matter of fact, no attempts at bribery were made, which sounds like a low estimate, but still we get the point. Yeah, it's kind of a low bar. So the great state of Massachusetts got it later that year in 1888, full state to go full hog on the Australian ballot. That's more what I expected. You got on the ballot if your party in in Massachusetts, if your party had gotten at least 3% of the vote in the previous election, or you got enough signatures, there would be six foot buffer around the voting booths. And any officials who are allowed to approach it and communicating your vote was punishable by a fine. How did they know? Hmm? How did they know you communicated your vote? They checked your Instagram account. Henry Dana 
the third, Richard Henry Dander the third, excuse me, the chief author of the Massachusetts law said, I have visited precincts where under the old system, coats were torn off the backs of voters, where ballots of one kind have been snatched from voters hands and others put in their places with threats against using any but the substituted ballots. And under the new system, all was orderly and peaceable. Where coats were used as ballots and ballots were used as coats. Sounds boring. Yeah. You sound boring. I know. I've been given that note a lot of times. <laughs> wow. Things in the studio just got real. It's tense in here now. Noel you can feel crying. that. crying. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Noel's mopping up his tears with a ballot. Max is Tissue writing on the ballot. ballot. Tissue ballot. Yeah. Max, we gave him a box of tissue ballots. It said best friends on it. Yeah. Uh, it said Max and Jackie. And now it's just filled with tears. He, he crossed their names out and handed it him. According yeah. to this, a booger is now your best friend. Uh, yeah. You voted for a booger. But deep down, I already, I always knew that. A yeah. booger is now the mayor of Cambridge. <laughs> As it should be. By 1890, the Australian ballot had spread to Indiana, Minnesota, Missouri, Montana, Rhode Island, Wisconsin, Tennessee, Maryland, Mississippi, Vermont, Washington and the territories of Oklahoma and Wyoming. Did you notice I slowed down as I said those states as I tried to remember which of the M states had which initials in my notes? I did not notice. No, that was either. very well yeah. done. There's a lot of smooth. there's a lot of M states and I their initials can get confusing. I figured it was just for emphasis. No. So obviously this thing had its opponents, namely everyone who benefited from the old way of doing things. And not that I really buy the things that they said, but I'm going to now list for you some of the things that they said were problems with a new way of doing things. Go ahead. Too secret. No one knows who won. No one knows who won. <laughs> the, the Max Kreisky criticism, how do we know the government-supplied ballots aren't fake? Mm. Yes. We I can mean, tr- that's a legitimate question. <laughs> we haven't seen them being prepared. We can't know. That's true. People who were really into the idea of paying voters for their votes um, said it was a loss of income for poor people. They were said, we can't bribe them directly anymore. How will they afford food? They said it was an obstacle for illiterate voters. And um, some of the tickets allowed for party line voting with a single check mark. So what is the point at that point? Although I guess it's still a secret. However, in general, there was more split ticket voting under the system than previously, as in voting across parties on one ballot. Mm. Hmm. New York Governor David Hill, a Tammany Hall Democrat, said he was unalterably opposed to any system of elections which will prevent the people from putting candidates in nomination at any time and voting for them by a printed ballot up to the very last moment before closing of the polls on election day. This is an inherent right under our free institutions, which the people will never knowingly surrender. So they weren't allowed to do any write-ins on the new printed ballots? Um, I don't know when that appeared. As, As I said, there were like rules for getting on and there were like Usually allowed by petitions. I don't know if write-ins were a thing yet. And he's just like, and I should know. No one had ever heard of me this time last year, but I got 102% of the vote. Yes. (laughs) Good job, Governor Hill. So in New York, the Tammany Hall machine was very good at fighting the Australian ballot. Mm -hmm. They were able to resist a push to get one, Mm -hmm. but they ended up with a watered-down, basically useless law where they had a printed ballot, but parties could just hand out stickers that would cover (laughs) the entire page and were functionally identical to the same way of already doing things. Oh, I love how dumb that is so much. (laughs) Yeah. And it's just someone standing there with, like, a bucket of paste, just pasting the back of them and handing them out. If you you don't do what he wants, he glues you and <laughs> catches you to a horse right over your mouth voter suppression back then was gluing someone's mouth shut yes. 
In California, critics called the system ponderous and elaborate. It makes the whole act of approaching the polls, obtaining, marking, and depositing the bill a weighty process full of technical steps and bristling with penalties. And my favorite criticism of the Australian ballot was just ridiculous shade thrown against the nation of Australia. I was so (laughs) hoping. I was so hoping it would be that someone was just like, Australia? The convict nation? Yes. Convict <laughs> This is what they said. The, they, the ballot, they said, originated in an imperial colony made for people born and reared under tutelage of government, accustomed to bowing to official authority. Just massive shade on Australia for inventing this thing. Didn't have quite the sting as um, Max's insults yeah. to Australia. Yeah. If we adopt this ballot, how do we know kangaroos won't invade? <laughs> <laughs> there are scorpions in Australia. Do you want scorpions? In Australia, they have voted a scorpion into office, the office of common vermin. Do you want to have a scorpion voted into your boot? Vote against government ballots. So the Australian ballot, despite those criticisms, continued to expand well into the early 1900s. The rest of the chapter that's actually in the book is mostly about the process in California and how that happened. There's not that many fun anecdotes there, but the one I I will say is on March 7th, 1891, the day the California State Assembly was set to vote on their law about the Australian ballots, 20 of the 80 Assembly Republicans were mysteriously absent because they had been told not to be there by the majority leader, so they wouldn't have to vote on it. So basically what the party dynamics were there were the Democrats were all for it, mm. and the Republicans had said they were all for it because, like, all of the common people wanted it, and then the Republicans really didn't want it. <laughs> so they just didn't show up under orders of their boss. And there was a motion by the leading Democrat to send out the Assembly sergeant-at-arms to go find them. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Which I don't know what that entailed, and I couldn't find any more details on what it would have entailed. I'm hoping, like, rappelling down the side of a beautiful villa and crashing in through the window and just, like, rolling across the floor and just grabbing a Republican and forcing them to a ballot and being like, vote! Well, what do you want me to vote for? What? Whatever your heart says! California did pass it shortly after that. Many more states, as I said, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But the last state to take it was South Carolina, not until 1950. What?! Not until 1950 did South Carolina have this system. What did they have instead? I don't know. I I don't know. I'm sorry. I I hope they were still putting the balls in a jar. (laughs) (laughs) I hope like all million South Carolinans gathered around the jar and put their balls in and then had to wait to count them. (laughs) One. Two. We'll know by next election who's won this one. (laughs) Four. Oh, it's going to be a close race. Five. Please do that for the rest of this show. Six. Okay. Um, going back to what seven, we said before. All right, you're done. Um, eight. <laughs> let him get to ten. It's better that way. Nine. Oh, that's eleven. Hold on. Oh, I've miscounted. Let me start oh. over. <laughs> One. This is also why the system was bad. Two. Yeah. Every now and then you got a clown. Three. Oh, oh, I lost all the balls. They went down a drain. Well, Miss Election, we'll have to start all over next year. So... Our estimates of voter participation from, like, the 1840s to the 1890s were up in, like, the 60 to 80 percent. I guess I think we're ignoring here the obviously false ones and are going by historians' actual best estimates of how many people voted. Mm. But 60 to 80 percent of eligible voters in their estimates voted between 1640s and 1690s. You know, you probably felt wanted. 
Yeah, they people were paying you to be there, and it was a big party. This is kind of the point that they make. Yeah, no better way to feel wanted than to be paid to be somewhere. By 1920, it had fallen to 49%, and presidential years today are about 55%. And this wasn't the only reason by far. That's also when like Jim Crow really started kicking in and whatnot. But I've seen the graph, and it's really interesting that at about 1890, when this stuff really took off, Voter participation collapsed. Now, as I said before, I personally don't feel that what was happening before was voting. <laughs> like, it was a game that looked like voting. Mm-hmm. But, like, a lot, some scholars have argued, like, voting day should be more fun and social because now, in that it is safe, it is kind of boring. <laughs> we should once again look to the great nation of Australia. They make voting day a national holiday. It's mandatory to vote. You get fined if you don't. They, uh, like set up barbecues outside the voting booths. So, like people play music. It's a whole big party. People get drunk and vote and have a fun time. Like, like voting should be fun. Yeah. You're, you're choosing the, the future of your country. I don't know if I would mandate that people vote, but I would I, ma- agree with the rest of it. I would mandate a barbecue. Yeah. You yeah. have to, no vegetarians. You gotta That's throw what I would mandate. Just yeah. the early November on the street barbecue. <laughs> Jackie's a vegetarian, so she can't vote. You can't vote. I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, Jackie. This is suppression. It's the worst thing that's mm-hmm. ever happened in a democracy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my that's my tale of the Australian ballot and how voting came to be boring. What a story. Yeah. yeah. I, I especially liked all the bad things that happened to people. <laughs> <laughs> On the way over here, Mark and I were talking and Mark said something that I, I, I think is very true, which is when something gets far enough back behind you in history, it flips over from being terrible to being funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Like Genghis Khan. Like, terrible person. Yeah. I would make jokes about him all day. Black Death, probably the worst thing that has ever happened up there. Mm. One of the worst things that has ever happened. Hilarious. Would make Black Death jokes all day. Mm -hmm. What are these? Boobos on you? (laughs) (laughs) I hope we don't have any Black Death listeners. (laughs) If if there was any Frisian peasants listening, I'm very sorry. Sorry, uh, sorry for your loss. Sorry uh, for all. Our, sorry for one third of your friends. He comes out. He's just like, "Hey, look what I heard on this podcast," and they just burn him for being a witch. <laughs> You've got people trapped inside. No, wait. They said we'll get through her. My bones and flesh. Oh no! Stop beating me with carrots. Ugh. You know, Max would have something pithy to say about this. If only he were a man who just lived in a box. Who only spoke once every few weeks and perhaps more now that he's on the network. Oh, about the same. <laughs> about the same. <laughs> that was a subtle plug for the network. Uh, oh, I thought you were going to run with that. Unless we have any other hypotheticals. Oh, um, how would you design a ballot to be fraudulent? To be fraud? Oh, how would people know it was mine? Yeah. Oh, man. I would do one in, that looks like an exact copy of my face, and each different feature is a different person or thing to vote for. Like my uh, my eyes would be I don't even know would be like would Senate votes, uh, and then see like and uh, my eyebrows would um would be Secretary of State and District Attorney respectively. Uh, each of my teeth would be a ballot measure. Wait, so would you, would your body parts actually be running for office, or would this this is where the text would be? This is where the text would be. Oh, I see. Yes. Okay. I mean, my nose would be running for office, but that would be a separate thing. But <laughs> it would have it, its own ticket. Inter- separate party. Interestingly, the vote for nose would be on the ears. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think it'd be fun to have like a little paper cutout 
kind of design. Mm-hmm. So as someone lifts it to put it into the slot, I guess, you would catch the sun through the cutouts and mm-hmm. it would make a beautiful pattern on the floor that said, made by Jackie. Mm-hmm. That's, That's how you'd know. I think I would want my ballot to come to you folded. And then when you opened it, it was a pop-up book oh. of oh. all the different candidates. Well, that's delightful. That's very nice. Yeah. And how would you vote for them? Hmm. By tearing out parts of the pop-up book? No, you would just like check them and then you would fold it back up and put it in the box. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Similarly, I was thinking a flip book mm-hmm. that would just have some big campaign promise on the pages, like me walking over to people with big sacks with dollar signs on them and giving <laughs> them to them. And then at the end, there would just be that one name to check off at the end of the flip book. Oh, that's good. That's a nice one. I think I would also, I would have a ballot and I would write all my opponents' names on it and including mine. Yeah. But their checkboxes would have a snake instead of a checkbox. <laughs> and if you tried to vote for them, you got bitten and died. Yeah. So not just an ink, <laughs> not, literally no, like a real like snake. snake, several dozen snakes like on a many snake. Snakes. <laughs> but if vote, that, if that guy can. gets his perfume for real, I get these snakes oh, in my imagination. Yeah. Oh, it's snake guy. Got another one. <laughs> vote Camposano, the hissing ballot. God, I love that so much. <laughs> uh, that's very good. So on to the interlude. Hi. Welcome to the interlude. Hi, Max. Hi. This is where we tell you a little bit about the Make Fun Network and read you our new fan fiction. So we're joining the Make Fun Network. That means we're a part of a wonderful network of podcasts that are there to have fun about various things. Much like how Anachronismo is all about having fun with history, the other shows such as Top 5 of Death and This Rules, This Sucks are about having fun with other elements of culture. Top 5 of Death is... Of course, a thing where hosts bring in their top five and whatever subject that is that week, and then they vote on them, die, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's, uh, it's a blast. And This Rules This Sucks is a show about uh, enjoying things or hating them without any nuance. It is simply about coming in and saying, I love this thing. Here's why. I hate this thing. Here's why. And that's, that's joyful. Joyful in many ways. I don't know why I'm using this professional soft boy uh, NPR voice for these rowdy, rowdy podcasts, but I, I kind of love it. So we're now part of the Make Fun Network, which means that, um, we're going to we, be. Are we a rowdy podcast now? Uh, I, guess, I guess so. Let's crack open some beers. Most of the hosts don't drink. Well, I'll... close them back up. Yeah. Yeah. Did and you guys just close cans of beer? <laughs> yes. We're magic. We're, wow. we, we, <laughs> we're magic as well fingers. as rowdy. It's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Rowdy magic users. Here comes. Um, our Anachronismo fan fiction, the first one we're reading live on the air. Should you have a name for your fan fiction segment? Oh, uh, yes, actually. Hold on. Uh, this is the first fan fiction segment, which we are calling Fanficronismo. I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what do you want to call it, Noel? I don't know, but I hate that. Okay, Jackie. You're good enough with Fanachronismo. Fanachronismo? Ooh, I love that. That's that's good. I've been outdone with an anac name. Okay. Thanks, Mark. Mark's the new Max now. I saved you. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Hope you like doing this every two weeks. Hi, everyone. I'm a wizard. (laughs) It hurts because it's accurate. (laughs) I can purvey magic. I like tea. Hi, and welcome to Fanacronismo, where we read Anachronismo fanfiction. This first fanfiction was sent in by our friend Bebek, who wished to remain anonymous. <laughs> the title of this fanfic is Immaculate Misconceptions. No one can know about this, whispered Max, and he turned over in bed. But Max, the sibilant protestation rang out. I simply cannot keep it inside. Max sighed as he gazed upon his scaly lover. 
Doris, you knew this could never be. I am a professional history dissector, and you're a snake who lives in a bag. <laughs> Don't tread on this love, darling. But who could ever understand, retorted Max. The genesis of our love is nestled deep in a Patreon segment. No one could possibly have the necessary reference. Erp, erp, erp. Before he could finish, klaxons were going off. Hold that thought, the dashing not-quite-historiographer announced as he leapt to the opposite wall where hung an outrageously-sized water microphone. There's a history emergency! Ahoy hoy, which, as you know, was Alexander Graham Bell's original intended greeting for the telephone. Kreisky, get your ass down to HQ! Jackie's alarmed voice rang through the receiver. Someone's been going around telling young children that Cleopatra built the Great Pyramids! Flaming Fanta-drinking Führers! Everyone knows that Cleopatra was born closer in time to us than she was to the building of the Great Pyramids. Well, they won't soon unless we do something! Max hung up the receiver and put his two slender index fingers into his mouth and let out a mighty whistle. Herodotus! To me! He bellowed. He then walked calmly to his garage, where he'd left Herodotus, which was his 1980 Volvo, which also wasn't, like, sentient or voice-activated or anything. (laughs) At the Anachronismo headquarters, it was chaos. All around him, Max could see the Anacro interns scarpering about from one console to the next as the command map lit up with the locations where historical misconceptions were being propagated. Maximum! A regal voice called out. It was Noel, descending from the command bridge, regally clad as always in his floor-length cochineal toga. Thank goodness! Now the team is all here, we can tackle this disaster! Sounds just like Noel. From raspy. <laughs> from the Latin dis meaning bad and aster meaning star, due to the ancient Romans' belief that stars could portend good or bad fortune, a thoughtful Kreisky elucidated. Do we have any leads? Jackie, what do we know so far? <laughs> On it, my systems have the vector traced to one particular zip code, said the Viking. I knew we could count on you, said Noel. Sure. <laughs> I took it as an Edward Gibbon. Jackie blushed under her hornless helmet. <laughs> so where's it coming from? Who's denying the Grecian origins of Cleopatra Ptolemy? asked Max. Well, you're not going to believe this, but it's 90038. That's right. Hollywood. Max furrowed his brow quite Britishly. Our old enemy. (laughs) I wonder if it's him again. We need to get down there now. By the way, Noel, you really should crush up those cochineals before you apply them to your garments. (laughs) Nonsense! The kingly Knoll scoffed as the still-living arthropod skittered about his toga. (laughs) Some short hours later, the Anacro Gyro touched down on the streets of Hollywood. It was quiet. Yes, almost too quiet, said Knoll. Knoll, stop breaking the fourth wall! We need to focus, a focused Jackie said. As they got off the anachronistic vehicle, everything seemed fine. Then they spotted the billboards that made the trio drop to their knees and holler in fear. Large billboards that hung over the city, usually advertising handbags and insurance and Jesus, were now emblazoned with phrases like, Napoleon was short. Marie Antoinette said, let them eat cake. The Roman Empire ended in 476, and Nero actually helped during the Great Fire. Wait, said Noel as he paused his screaming. I thought that last one was actually true. Well, it's a little complicated, and there are a few schools of... Began Max. Both of you shut up. I see someone climbing up to that billboard. Jackie was pointing at a cloaked figure making their way up a ladder. The historical trio hurried to the billboard, and using their immense heights, pulled the figure to the grounds. The person's hood came away, revealing an all-too-familiar face. Dan! Carlin! The trio hollered for the second time this hour. Quote, (laughs) Yes, it is I, said the not-a-historian-but-a-fan-of-history. End quote. To be continued. So that was basically Time Squad for for people just being wrong. Yeah. I also feel personally attacked. (laughs) 
Max, stop furring your brow Britishly. I hope Fan Acronismo is so successful it becomes its own podcast. Oh, my goodness. I would love that. The thing that really got me was Fan Max uh, explaining the origins of the word disaster. It was pretty good. <laughs> I never thought about that. I mean, earlier this episode, I did that whole same thing with uh, blackballing. <laughs> so <laughs> it uh, really, really felt really felt accurate. <laughs> it's powerful. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Bebek. That thank, was wonderful. Thank yep. you, anonymous writer Bebek. <laughs> so that's the end of Fanacronismo. So let's leave this interlude, but not before I ask you to rate, review Anachronismo on your favorite podcatcher and contact us on Twitter at, at Anachpodcast. That's A-N-A-C podcast. All right. And now on with the rest of our show. So, Noel, tell us about your story. Both of these are naval stories, but I wanted to start off with a uh, bit of a follow-up to last show's story about Coca-Cola's operations in Germany during World War II, because I found not as interesting a story, but enough for a quick tidbit of a little fact that at one point during the Cold War... Which is the best time to keep sodas cold. In space. Yeah. What? (laughs) (laughs) That uh, Pepsi actually had the sixth largest navy by measure of diesel-powered submarines. Do explain. Yes. No, you can't just drop that and then... No, I'm walk, going on walk, to the rest No, of come back to the tape. No, no I'm away. leaving. <laughs> Why are they getting louder as he walks farther away? <laughs> so in the Cold War, there were certain... Uh, I didn't get into this as much in depth as my next my main story, but basically during the Cold War, there was certain like cultural exchange fairs that took place in the uh, US and in Russia or Soviet Union. And, um, you know, they just had various companies like either their product, their science, you know, just very basic stuff, kind of like a show off uh, sort of deal. And Pepsi caught the interest of the Soviet Union. I think there was a famous photo of the Soviet leader at the time. With the U.S. president at the time, which might have been Nixon. Yeah, Nixon Khrushchev. Yeah, that's the one. Nixon and, and Khrushchev, yeah. Oh, okay. I thought you were saying that that was, that was, it was U.S. President Nixon Khrushchev. <laughs> um, I was wondering why you <laughs> paused so long. But yes, actually, fun fact. The reason there are only pictures of Richard Nixon from the front is if, if he turns around, his entire backside is Khrushchev. <laughs> The two and we were all played for fools. <laughs> yeah. Be a little little comic sketch yeah. of all the uh, Secret Service or people coming in being like, Khrushchev, Nixon should be here. Where is he? Oh, just go out and look for him. I'm sure he'll be back and just spins it around. Hey, we've been looking all over for you. Wait, where's... Oh, did he just leave? Oh, hold on. I'll go find him underneath this desk. Clump, 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 clump. <laughs> Here I am, boys. There's a that famous picture of Nixon with the V for victory yeah. and his fingers up in the air. Yep. There's an identical photo of Khrushchev. It's actually the same moment from two different angles. Taken from inside <laughs> the plane. <laughs> <laughs> Why is Khrushchev just holding his hands behind his head and giving the peace sign? Seems so awkward. Well, not up to us to question Khrushchev. Essentially, Pepsi was able to get sort of a monopoly hold 
of the Soviet Union market for cola. So they beat out Coca-Cola and a huge part of their deal from the, I think, late 60s, early 70s was that they did it in exchange for submarines. No. Oh they my did God. It in exchange for Russian vodka, like an exclusive or Soviet Union vodka. Okay. Um, that was just considered exclusive at the time. So it was just a trade of, you know, product for product. But that's fine. Pepsi expanded so greatly during this time that they had something like 20 factories that were producing submarines. Uh, cola. <laughs> <laughs> no, that the deal went up, was set to expire in 1989. And so when they went to renegotiate the deal, they realized that Pepsi had taken such a strong position in the market that the vodka just would not be an equitable trade. So they had to get something else that they could trade in exchange for Pepsi. And it was submarines. Yes. Oh my god. (laughs) They exchanged, I think it was something 17 submarines, uh, destroyer, and some other large naval ship that they just gave to Pepsi. What did they do with Pepsi? took the ships in Sweden and just sold them for either scrap or to, I don't know if they sold it to the government itself or they just, they just took the ships and sold them because the issue was because of the cold war, I think the ruble just wasn't, there was no exchange to the U S dollar. So that was a huge point to mention why they exchanged Pepsi for vodka in the first place. They decided to use a stronger currency, the submarine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and so for a few days while Pepsi had this fleet of ships before they got them into uh, Sweden and sold them, they had the sixth largest navy by measure of diesel submarines in the world. Oh my god, I love this so much. I love this so much. It still couldn't win the cola wars. Did Pepsi Man command the fleet? That would be really <laughs> Well, at really the time, cool. actually, Pepsi just- Man was a lowly deck swab but he worked his way up through courage and bravery when you think that Pep- pepsi man only came out like six or seven years later if that had happened if the video game industry had hit a little bit sooner they probably would have just for pr photos they would have just gotten probably gotten him to be helped just at the head of the the fleet sailing into sweden is I pepsi man a video game yep mm-hmm it was a brief mascot that Pepsi had, and they made a really dumb video games with it. A oh. perfectly smooth blue man. Also, I don't have the quote in front of me, but apparently the PepsiCo chair is said to have told some member of the NSA that Pepsi was more effective at disarming the Soviets than the U.S. was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a real horrible weapon. Just corrodes away the metal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I was the PepsiCo... For the time that I had those ships, I would have Admiral parroted up. I would have sailed down to a city. Sailed down to Atlanta. Like, sailed down to Atlanta, trained my guns on the city, and, like, demanded they drink Pepsi. I was going to say, okay, here's here's my one small change. Shaking up a bunch of cans of soda on the deck and pointed them at the city. (laughs) You will drink it, and you will like it. The Pepsi Challenge. It's a battleship. They called it <laughs> the SS Pepsi Challenge. They called it the Black Wave. What do you enjoy better, this cup of Coca Cola or this battleship? <laughs> and thus started the brief and bitter war of the United States versus Pepsi. Well, in the Blind Taste Challenge, uh, I think I, the the cold metallic flavor of the battleship really shines through. <laughs> I think this one is Coke, and I think this one is the battleship. <laughs> <laughs> 
Why? It's bigger. It's way bigger. It, it doesn't really fit in my mouth. Um, <laughs> and I can hear the sound of diesel engines uh, going on below decks. Now that I think about it, there's a hint of diesel right mm. at the end. That's the Coke. I'm sorry. Oh, damn it. <laughs> it really is that tough. So the main story I had today was about another Navy, the U.S. Navy. Max Pop. We're in the Navy, yeah, we don't have gravy because we're sailing a ship. Pop, pop. We can't make gravy here in the Navy because we don't have any on you the ship. You only know one word that rhymes with Navy, don't you? Yeah, with this Navy, we hunt for gravy. Yep. Oh, what's what we want? You can't bump. think of a way. Here in the Navy, we want some gravy, so we're attacking Japan. <laughs> Japan has some gravy for this big navy. We want to have our big navy gravy because our rations are dry and wavy here in this old navy. It sounds like it would have been a chart topper yeah. in like the 1920s. You who don't like musical improv. <laughs> navy, navy, gravy, gravy, navy, gravy, gravy, navy. You're a regular gravy, village gravy, person. Yeah. <laughs> I fed my baby oh, some navy gravy. It made it very fat. <laughs> the baby ate the navy gravy. <laughs> the baby hated the navy gravy. <laughs> now we know the extent of Max's rhyming vocabulary. <laughs> you shouldn't have given me that power, Noel. You shouldn't have done it. So the Tripolitanian War, also called the First Barbary War, took place between the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. And mm. it's not as well known as either, but it had to do with U.S. merchant ships being attacked by certain uh, North African port cities, including Morocco, Algiers, Tripoli, for which the war is named, and Tunis. Um, so essentially, sorry, Tripoli, Tripoli. Well. Tripolitanian Wars. You can edit that all in, Max, you wizard. I still need the clean reading to do it. Oh, okay. is, is it Tripolitanian or is it tripo Tripolitan? I think Tripolitan. Oh, no, that's Neapolitan. Sorry. Right, but that's why I think it might be Tripolitan. Oh, you're right, because it's got three flavors. Strawberry, vanilla, and chocolate. <laughs> He's so angry. Just disappointed. So the First Barbary War, also called the Tripolitanian War, mm. took place between the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. But it was not as big of scope as either of those wars, and it was done to address attacks on U.S. merchant ships by four northern African territories. Tunis. By, by four northern? Like one, two, three, four? One, two, three, four. Okay. Uh, Morocco. Not three. Hold on a second. Tripoli. It's a joke. It's fine. Four is probably right. Yeah. Something about flavors of ice cream. Yeah. Delicious, delicious ice cream. Vanilla strawberry and chocolate. Yes. Oh, Tripoli. Tripoli. Yeah. Tripoli. 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 Yep. Well, unfortunately, they missed that chance of making that joke because it was Morocco, Tunis, Algiers, and Tripoli. So the origin of these events were that under the Treaty of the Alliance, French naval ships would protect U.S. merchant ships during the Revolutionary War. But after the end of the war with the Treaty of Paris, that part of negotiations with France had ended. The U.S. was responsible for safeguarding their own merchant ships. So they got away with not doing that for a little over a year. And then starting in late 1984... Merchant ships. 1984. Seven, oh, my God. In late <laughs> they got away with it for a while. <laughs> 200 That's... years. They could have used the Pepsi Navy. <laughs> <laughs> 
1784, uh, <laughs> Moroccan pirates were the first to seize a U.S. merchant ship. And when they had captured these merchants, the Spanish actually were the ones that negotiated and traded for the merchants' freedom. And they gave them back to the U.S. with just the warning of, hey, this is going to keep happening to you. Our <laughs> advice to you is to keep paying these bribes because it's really tough. These people own the me- Mediterranean. It's going to be really tough. So just pay them off if they capture your soldiers. And so the U.S. did. They actually <laughs> – they they first took diplomatic action with Morocco, and they were able to actually barter just peace with them that no more of their merchants were being captured. But the other uh, three Barbary coast states did not follow suit. And in 1785, they captured a few more trading ships. And they demanded for the returns of the the ships and the sailors six hundred and sixty thousand dollars. Can I ask, were these pirates or were they endorsed by the nations? They were autonomous pirates. They were extensions of the Ottoman Empire, so they I did see, not okay. take direction from them. Uh, they but- were privateers then. So if they, if they so they had like letters of commission from the Ottoman Empire. No. Okay. But they were extensions of the Ottoman Empire. Extensions of the – yeah, they were provinces of the Ottoman Empire. I see. But the pirates weren't extensions of the Ottoman Empire. No. Okay. And so things kind of came to a grinding halt with these negotiations. Yeah, because, because that's more money than ever existed at that time. If you account for inflation, that's more money than ever could exist. That's not true at all. <laughs> that's entirely not true. Uh, agree to disagree, Noel. <laughs> Did you just say – if you account for inflation, that's more money than it was because that's what inflation is all the time. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> ambassadors to these countries that were trying to negotiate for the freedom of these sailors were only budgeted 40000 to make peace. And so that just didn't fly. So those crews actually remained enslaved for over a decade for being captured. It. Okay, so, so what did I get wrong about inflation? Okay, well, first of all, about the amount of money, because in 1795, the sailors were finally released at the cost of a million dollars. And so this was actually one-sixth of the U.S.'s entire budget. Whoa. Whoa. Didn't just say it's been 10 years, we just forgot about them? No. um, Stories about these sailors and some of the tales that had happened to them reached the mainland of the U.S. and the citizens were not happy and they were making – they were petitioning the government to release these sailors. This was actually one of the leading factors that started the United States Department of the Navy in 1798 were these pirates capturing merchant ships so that was about at this point 13 years of just negotiating with pirates of just getting sailors captured and having to negotiate with their freedom with huge portions of the u.s uh, budget every year is this why so this would have been happening before the current constitution um under the articles of confederacy yes is this why we have that clause in the constitution that specifically says that congress is allowed to fight pirates that's one of the declared powers of Congress is fighting pirates. Oh, my gosh. Personally? Per- what do you mean personally? Like yeah, con- yeah. <laughs> yes, at any given time, the Speaker of the House can rally the Congress, the members of Congress, put them in boats, and fight pirates. I'm so sad I didn't know that about the Constitution until just now. <laughs> that is simply delightful. But I bet it's totally the reason that's why a reason. Is. I would not be surprised because yeah. this was a very divisive issue amongst uh, government representatives. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were 
among those who were trying to negotiate and work with these states to ensure that their sailors weren't being captured. But it started to cause divides at home uh, between Federalist and Anti-Federalist forces just because of the burden of the taxes versus the idea that there was this whole westward territory that they could expand into and that getting sending merchant ships overseas was embroiling them in affairs across the sea that they really didn't have any control over. For 15 years, they kept paying these ransoms. And so by 1800, there was another million-dollar payment made that was about 10% of the U.S.'s revenues for 1800. That's a huge portion that goes to pirates. But the, the U.S. government wasn't doing as much back then. It's still a no, huge, yeah, that, huge portion of the things that they did do. Do you think at that point they just had an, a piracy tax or a piracy budget? Just like, that's, yeah, this portion is just going to pirates. Just might as well account for it. <laughs> might as well plan for it in our yearly uh, accounting ships. We put a little pirate – I mean a pirate stamp yep. on it to mark that the tax has been paid. A little, little Jolly Roger there. Clink, clink. Was there one pirate member of Congress who was, like, fighting for this really hard? (laughs) Gentlemen of the Congress, I believe that these pirates are being (laughs) ill-spoken of. No taxation without representation of pirates. Vote for me, pirate. What do you represent again? The sea. (laughs) So when Jefferson became president, he was very against paying these tributes to the Barbary states, and he got congressional legislation right before his inauguration that would provide for six frigates that shall be officered and mannered as the president of the United States may direct. Full of Pepsi men. The super soldier that we developed in the 1700s. super soldier syrup. Uh, Super soldier syrup, yes. So Jefferson essentially (laughs) skipped a payment of almost a quarter of a million dollars at which point Tripoli declared war on the United States. So an interesting point of, uh, about Congress is that the Barbary Wars were never formally authorized by Congress as a declaration of war. It's just they gave the president a lot of power in instructing how these American naval vessels could not only protect merchant fees, but also seize the vessels and goods of the opposing ships and do anything else that, that was justified. So... They gave pretty much a blank check to Thomas Jefferson to just be like, you can tell these guys to do whatever you want. As long as it all looks clean and fair and love and war, you can get away with anything. (laughs) And so the U.S. had a little tag team partner during this war. Anyone want to guess who? El Santo, the famous luchador. More of a country. Oh, more of a country. Than (laughs) a single alone luchador. Santonia, land of the luchadors. (laughs) Their acrobatics don't work in the sea. They try to, like, just do a backflip and just... (laughs) Suplex a shark. There's nothing to suplex it onto. They just spin in a circle. (laughs) Serious guess, Portugal. Um, Serious guess, Greece. So France, Portugal, and Greece? Yeah. No. Oh. It was the country that, in but 200 more years, would purchase a ragtag group of submarines from the Pepsi Pepsi? (laughs) No, Pepsi didn't sell them to themselves. <laughs> to Sweden! Oh! Whoa! Sweden had already been at war for over a year, and so the U.S. just joined in with them, and they were able to work together in assaulting the states. Can I interrupt you for a joke? Because this has yes. come up twice now, and I have to mention it. Yes. I was told this joke two days ago. <laughs> 
It's about Sweden and the ocean. So it's like been relevant twice. Maybe someone in the audience has heard this before. It was told to me by someone else. I've already told it once today because <laughs> I love this joke. Why do Swedish battleships have barcodes on the sides? Is it because they're interchangeable and expensive? No. I've heard it before, so I don't want to say. Oh, this isn't a good joke. Well, let's hear it then. So they can scan the Navy in. It's very good. It's really good. Max, you sounded so jealous right there. Uh, that's really good. I learned that joke three days ago, and I've told it twice today. Because it's, <laughs> it's been relevant twice today. It's a really good joke. Yeah. That's very good. So I'll just give uh, two highlights of the war mm-hmm. that seemed that were interesting. Mm-hmm. And then I'll just go to the conclusion. So two interesting highlights of the war is that the U.S. had pretty much – a large component of their navy overseas fighting this war. One of the ships, the Philadelphia, was captured. So the U.S. already used to paying high percentages of X amount in this war, lost one of their six frigates, uh, was captured, and was just anchored in the bay as a fortification, essentially, just a... Something in the way? No, well, they had cannons on the ship. So they, they just, they didn't send it out to sea to do battle, but they sort of kept it in the harbor and would just aim and fire cannon. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Noel, a quick point of fact. It's only a fortification if it's uh, on dry land. Uh, if it's in the sea, it's a boatification. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one, too. Yep. <laughs> You, you're making up ground up after that Scandinavian joke. Yeah, I got, I gotta, I gotta flex my muscles here. Yeah. So the U.S. though, in turn, had captured one of the pirate ships, and under the cover of darkness, they approached the Philadelphia. And by the time that they realized that the ship that approached them was not one of their own, the Americans had jumped on board. And had driven off the pirates. And then I don't know why I believe the ship was scuttled or something that they couldn't get it back to the sea. So they just burned it down and left. (laughs) (laughs) So if they couldn't have it, no one could. The turning point of the war was an inland battle comprising the U.S. Marine Corps and 500 mercenaries from surrounding Mediterranean states that marched inwards and captured the Tripolitan city of Derna, which was, fun fact, the first time the U.S. flag was raised in victory on foreign soil. Wow. Discounting the real moon landing in 1782. I knew it. <laughs> I like that theory. The The recent moon landing was fake, mm-hmm. but there was a real one in where 1782. Think, where do you think ninety <laughs> the other 90% of the U.S. budget went? 10% pirate ransoms? To Ben Franklin's pet project. 10% <laughs> space Martian ransoms and 80% space exploration. Putting a man on the moon. That man is Ben Franklin. Read Ben Franklin's original proposal for doing this. They just strap a man to a giant car. No, I don't want to go on. There's a thunderstorm. I'm coming. Ben, this was your idea. You've got to see it through. <laughs> no! At least send me a spare pair of bifocals. <laughs> I invented those. Tell my French mistresses I love them. <laughs> Which ones? Just any yeah, random anyone. woman in France. <laughs> She'll know. Uh, ben Franzler. That's <laughs> what they call me. <laughs> uh, when you get to Mars, hell, tell them Ben Franklin shot you. Bam. That's when he was fighting the Martian yeah. Martian pirates with a musket. Next time on Anachronies. <laughs> ben Franklin was the protagonist of Doom. I, I'd read that book. 
That can be your fan acronismo, Mark. Okay. So under continued stress from the inland moving force and under stress from both the Swedish and U.S. naval attacks, eventually peace was brokered um, between Tripoli. Tripoli? Man, Tripoli. Tripoli. Jeez, I keep stumbling over. I'm <laughs> Just, too dumb. I'm too dumb. I'm leaving. Okay. No, Just, you live here. Yeah. So here's here's how you remember that uh, how it's pronounced, right? It's governed by three letters: E, E, and E. So it's Tripoli. That doesn't help because the first part you said is not true. <laughs> Tripoli. It helped. It's a, it's, a, it's a heuristic if you remember a false fact. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm very good at those. So peace was brokered with Tripoli. You did it. My real thing worked. (laughs) And then at that time, um, due to increasing stress or increasing pressure that would eventually lead to the War of 1812, the Navy left the area. They would come back for a second uh, Barbary War sometime after the War of 1812, But at that time, their naval power had grown and they were actually able to end the war quite quickly. So, yes, little hidden wars in America's history and where 10% of the U.S. budget went for 15 years. The first 15 years as a country where uh, not a very significant portion of all the tax levied went to paying to get sailors out of sailor jail. Or sail, as it's called. Yes. I must have deafened you there, Max. That was very loud. How? I'm far away, and I just have my beautiful voice. You're a very loud man. <laughs> I don't care. Jackie would disagree. They you not loud? Do you not think Noel is loud? I do think he's loud. I can hear you, Jackie. Hold on. <laughs> I can hear you with my big ears and my big mouth. <laughs> He just opens his mouth and listens ah, with it. Poor ears eats, come out. I was thinking he just eats the sound, but your way is far more horrifying. Every time I listen to an acronym, I imagine Jackie and Max sitting in Noel's mouth while he talks. <laughs> Hi, and welcome sounds to an like, Coming at you live from, from Noel's, Noel's mouth. Sounds like you've got a good premise of a new fan fiction. Mm. We're not just a history podcast. We're a vor podcast, but you can't tell because we never talk about it. Jackie and Max laid out towels at the very tip of Noel's tongue in his big, dumb mouth. How do you think the weather will be today, Max said. Humid, Jackie said. (laughs) Our towels are already damp. Oh, dear. Well, I guess we'll just have to bring out our secondary towels. Hi, everyone. Ah, our ears, Max screamed. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, but yeah. He then offered Jackie a piece of food that had been caught in Noel's teeth. It was spinach, which was good because Jackie was vegetarian. This has been anachronismo. No, 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 no. Well, that's going to do it for us tonight here on anachronismo. 
Well, that's going to do it for us tonight here on Anachronismo. Uh, Mark, thank you so, so much for guest hosting and bringing your huge depth of knowledge about this very cool uh, history to thank us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, our, our absolute pleasure. Do you have anything you'd like to plug here at the end of the episode? The comedy show based on time travel, This Changes Everything, is going to be at the Democracy Center on December 1st and at Improv Boston on December 7th. Yes, I star in that. It's in a way. You co-star. I co-star in that. <laughs> the other star is Jane Ottensmeyer. Mm-hmm. She does a very good job. Yeah, as Max a, plays himself play as a mad scientist. A mad scientist who invents time travel. That's mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Which is actually where I get most of the information for this uh, this uh, podcast. You can't disprove it. <laughs> I can because I consume it both. <laughs> We can look at your internet history. I oh, think no. that'll lead to some research. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, that sounds right. Let's do a podcast right. about Max's internet history. It's uh, <laughs> mostly looking at uh, pictures of cool dogs and uh, stories about wizards. Can we make that the top five of Max's phone? And uh, we just go through your phone and see the most five recent searches and talk about them? The we, most five. The most five. That's right. Hello, podcasters. This is the most five. <laughs> this is the most five of death with me, your host, Most Bistany. <laughs> Mo- most Bostony. There what are the most go. five numbers? 55, negative 5, 5i, five 505, and 5. And the I, most five number at all, 5. I, I don't know. My favorite five number is 55,555. It's a good one. Got my fives. <laughs> What's five for the fifth? I don't know. This fives, this sixes. <laughs> anyway... Thanks to everyone who came out to our live show. It was wonderful having you. Thank you so much for taking a chance on us in a live show. If any of you were already listening to us, let us know. And if any of you started listening to us, uh, please let us know. We got a lovely tweet. A thank you to Todd Randolph, who tweeted, History is written by the winners, but it is improvised by Anachronismo. That's a good slogan. And he took a very nice picture of the three of us uh, at the Cambridge YWCA talking to each other. Yeah, that's a good slogan. Oh, that's a good that is slogan. great. Steal yeah. that from Todd. We're, yeah. Todd, we're stealing that and we're not paying you for it. Oh, Todd, we're going to use it, but we're going to think of you every time. Every time, Todd. We love you, Todd. What was his name? Todd, Todd. Randolph. I was joking. Yeah. <laughs> that was about how quickly I forgot Todd. Yeah. <laughs> Todd Randolph. We'll, 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 we'll credit him whenever he, we use it. Right? It's a good that's picture. awesome. Yeah. It's yeah. a nice little picture yeah, of us. Yeah, yeah. It looks so professional. Like a bunch of cats in business suits. Real professionals. Well, that's what we all are. Cat. Yep. Meow, 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 meow. Yeah. Vote for cat tomorrow. <laughs> you can use my special ballot, which is a hairball. They'll know who it is. They'll know. This They'll know. It's just a picture of a dog with, a, with the eyes poked out. That's right it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you to Todd. Thank you to everyone who came out to our live show. And thank you to you, listener, for joining us. And a special thanks to the Make Fun Network for having us. Uh, and we're very excited to be part of them. And we'll see you next time here on Anachronismo. Brought to you by Make Fun Network. <laughs>